Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Evening, East Service. How are you doing? Great. I've had man flu all week. Ladies, you just don't understand. Um, so if I'm a bit husky, that's the reason why. But uh, this is the final week of our series on the subject of worship. And in many ways, this whole series has been about how do we connect with God. Uh, as you are aware, the crazy idea behind the Christian faith is not only is God real and out there somewhere, but it's actually possible to have a relationship with him. But what is the nature of that relationship and how can we connect with God more deeply. That's kind of at the heart of worship. And just as with any relationship, it's important to approach it holistically. Relationships affect every part of our being. So through the course of this series, we have looked at worship and the heart, mind, body, and emotions. And to conclude the series, I'm looking at worship and the spirit. And by that, I mean both the Holy Spirit, but also our own spirits as well. And I'll explain what I mean by that a little later on. Now, there aren't actually many passages in the Bible that speak explicitly about this particular subject. Usually, when worship is mentioned in the Bible, the Holy Spirit and our spirits, surprisingly, actually, are not, and vice versa. Uh, There are some exceptions, like 1 Corinthians 14, that we'll touch on a little later on. But more often than not, the connection between the two, worship and our spirits or the Holy Spirit, is kind of implied rather than stated plainly. And so the approach I'm going to be taking this evening is teaching on one very simple passage in the Gospel of John under the broader banner of worship, but I'm also going to be drawing on lots of verses in both the Old and the New Testament to kind of grapple with the subject matter more fully. So with that said, if you've got a Bible, please turn to John chapter 2, and I'm going to read a very well-known story of Jesus turning water into wine. Words are on the screen, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 11. This is what it says. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples' believed in him. Bit of an introduction to the story before we talk more broadly about the subject matter at hand. If you kind of know the layout of John's gospel, you'll know it's punctuated by seven what are called signs, not just miracles, but signs, which means they particularly point to who Jesus really is. And this verse 11 is the first of those signs. That means it's particularly significant. It's particularly poignant. In fact, I heard one well-known Bible teacher say, in some ways, this first sign sums up everything that Jesus is and everything that the Christian faith is. How on earth does it do that when compared to some of the other stuff that Jesus does, it seems a little less remarkable? It seems a little bit more ordinary. How and why is it so significant? 
At uh, Duke University in the United States, there used to be an English professor called Reynolds Price, and he wrote a very lengthy introduction to John's Gospel. And when talking about John chapter 2, the water into wine story, he said this, that if you were ever inventing the story of Jesus, you would never in a million years start with a story like this, what is essentially no more than a miraculous intervention to a mere social embarrassment. Now, if you were inventing the story for, of Jesus from scratch, you know, the greatest movement leader the world has ever seen, you'd start with something he says, what he calls quintessential. It's like a perfectly obvious sign pointing to the divinity of Jesus. He'd orchestrate it really carefully, like calling down fire from heaven, or raising somebody from the dead, or walking on water. You wouldn't start with a story like this. I mean, yes, I suppose you could argue that weddings back in the day were maybe a little bit more of an important deal in the local community than we might consider them today. I mean, maybe everybody in the local community would have known about it. But essentially, all that happens here, all that happens here without Jesus' involvement is a party is going to finish a little bit early. I mean, if you are wired like me, that's my kind of party. I mean, you get to go home early, have a bit of me time. I love parties like that. You know, the introverts feeling me right now. Okay, but why on earth would this be the first sign? Why on earth would Jesus start with this? And how on earth, verse 11, does this reveal the glory of Jesus to such an extent that the disciples see it and think, wow, we're going to follow you. We're going to trust in you. You must be the son of God. We want to give everything we've got to following you. How and why is this so significant? And under the banner of worship, I want to look at two really simple questions. Firstly, who does this story reveal that Jesus really is? Because once we know that, we can relate to him more effectively. And secondly, once we know that, how can we then connect with Jesus more deeply? Who is Jesus and how can we connect with him more deeply? Firstly, who is Jesus? Well, there's a rather curious interaction between Jesus and his mum Mary that sheds a little bit of light on this. Verse 3, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus' reply seems filled with tension. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And yet then he goes and does the miracle. Why would he respond like that? Well, just to be clear what is not happening here. What is not happening is Mary is not twisting the arm of Jesus behind his back to try and persuade him to do the miracle. It's not like Mary is coming to Jesus and saying, oh, come on, Jesus, it's your mum here. I've known you for 30 years. I gave birth to you. Do that water into wine thing I love so much. You're going to totally make the wedding amazing. Go on, go for it. And then Jesus is like, no, mum, cut it out, mum, not my time, mum, no, mum, no, oh, all right then, you know, that, that's not what's going on here. And yet sometimes that's how I relate to God. Sometimes I think to myself, if I badger him enough, if I try and twist his arm by doing lots of good works in the local community, if I read my Bible and pray every day, then Jesus will respond to all the moments in my life where it seems, metaphorically speaking, like the wine has run out. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with relating to God like that. And sometimes I think we're actually encouraged to relate to God like that. I just don't think it's worship in the context that we're looking at throughout this series. But it's okay to relate to God like that. Sometimes my own kids relate to me, their dad, like that. I mean, really silly example of this. Before Christmas, I threw out the question to my kids, hey, kids, what do you want daddy to buy you for Christmas? And my five-year-old girl, Mia, she launched a, a three-month propaganda campaign. She's like, I want a bunny, I want a bunny, I want a bunny. Well, that was never going to happen in a million years. But she was relentless. She, I want a bunny, I want a bunny. And in the end, I said one of those things that parents just say, just to shut the conversation up. 
I said, no, Mia, you're not having a bunny. I said, small animals are no good with children. And she looked at me through narrowed eyes, trying to work out how can I turn this gladiatorial contest in my favour? And she thought for a moment and said, but you're no good with children, which I, I thought... I thought... I thought for five years old was actually quite astute, to be honest. But the point is this, is even though my kids are little monsters, sometimes if they badger me enough, I'll be like, oh, well, right, I'll give you what you want. And part of the point of this story is actually that Jesus loves us so much more than a very imperfect daddy like me. Part of the point of this story is just, is Jesus isn't just a God that is concerned about the big stuff, like world hunger, or the refugee crisis, or homelessness on an international scale, no. If Jesus cares about two disorganized teenagers that haven't ordered enough wine for their wedding day, then goodness, Jesus cares about all the seemingly trivial things we're gonna face up when we wake up tomorrow morning. I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, Jesus loves you so much, and he so cares. And it is totally okay to bring all of that stuff to him. The Gospels tell us if we, even though we are imperfect, know how to give good gifts to our own children, how much more our God in heaven. All the junk you're facing right now, you can bring it to God. I just don't think it's worship in the context that we're looking at throughout this series, nor is it at the heart of Mary's interaction with Jesus. So why on earth would Jesus respond this way? Well, when Jesus says to his mum, my hour has not yet come, the hour of Jesus is like technical language in John's gospel for his death on the cross. In other words, here's how the interaction plays out. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds by saying, it's not my time to die yet. Well, that's a bit of a gloomy response if you think about it. I mean, this is a party for goodness sake. Why on earth would he respond that way? Is this just revealing that Jesus is a bit of a doom-monger? I mean, we all know at least one person like that, don't we? You know, every single service has, at least in my opinion, one kind of Eeyore character. You know that guy in Winnie the Pooh? One cup half empty, miserable, we're all doomed, the future's all bleak and negative. Every service has got one. And if you're thinking about this service right now and thinking, no, no, I don't think the service has got one, then it's probably you here, just so you know, okay? <laughs> People are thinking of you right now. Is that who this story is revealing Jesus to be? Jesus, they've got no more wine. I'm going to die one day. Is that who Jesus is? <laughs> well, of course not. So why would Jesus respond in this way? Well, one of the guys we quote a lot here at Christchurch is a brilliant, masterful author and speaker called Tim Keller. Uh, led Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York for many years. Now handed that over to focus on speaking and writing. And he's done a lot of work on John 2. And I just want to pay credit to him for some of the best bits in his, this talk. Presume it's his hard work rather than mine. But when talking about this particular interaction between Jesus and Mary, he says this. That the only plausible explanation for Jesus responding in this seemingly tension-filled way at this wedding in Cana of Galilee is this only plausible explanation. He is thinking of his own wedding day and what he's going to have to go through to get there. You see, I think perhaps the most extraordinary revelation about God in the whole Bible is about how we are to relate to him. Not simply as subjects to a king or children to a father, though that's what I hear most sermons on, but actually as a bride to a bridegroom. 
the most intimate way possible. This is a picture of God that is used in both the Old and the New Testament. Some of the verses are coming up on the screen behind me. In each of the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. In other words, part of what's at the heart of this interaction is Jesus is thinking of his own wedding day when he, the groom, is united with his bride, the church. It's a beautiful picture in Revelation about that. And he's thinking about what he's going to have to go through for the wine to be poured out on his wedding day. He's going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to shed his blood. But what it means for us is this, is that through Jesus, it means we can connect with God at the most intimate possible level. That is the intimacy that is possible when we worship. Now, the ancients understood something of this closeness. Uh, coming up on the screen behind me is a very basic graphic of how the ancients understood our humanity, our wiring. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on this in any great detail. Suffice to say this, that at the core of you and I, what they saw as making you and I, you and I, the part that leaves us when we die is our spirit. That's right at the core of who we are. That's what makes me, me. A few verses that speak of this. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 says this. The human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on our inmost being. You can look up the Zechariah and Corinthians verses. Psalm 42, which we'll look at later, puts this in picture language. Describes the deepest part of us connecting with the deepest part of God. Deep crying out to deep. Spirit connecting with spirit. Part of the way that we are to relate to God is not simply as children to a big and loving daddy in the sky, but as lovers. Isn't that extraordinary? Deep to deep, spirit to spirit. Now, a word to the skeptic here. I'm sure there are some skeptics in the room, and we all know other skeptics. You see, I can't scientifically prove that you and I have a human spirit. It's not like I can ever open a body up and say, that's where the human spirit is right there. But just because I cannot put it in a test tube and prove it scientifically doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because everybody, whether you have faith or not, we all believe in stuff that you cannot prove scientifically. Love would be the most obvious example of this. I cannot prove to you scientifically that my wife Joy loves me. Can't prove it. And yet I have this deep intuition, this kind of deep hunch that the connection between the two of us is somehow deeper and more significant than a load of neurons firing in our brains. We all have these intuitions. And around about 1990, there was a quite brilliant movie out called Awakenings. It starred Robert De Niro and uh, Robin Williams. Hands up if you've seen this movie out of interest. You Philistines. Goodness, but Enoch at the back, one cultured man amongst us, and Nate. Big up to you. You need to watch this. It is amazing and will probably make most of you cry. It's based on a true story. It's based on the memoir of a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. He actually wrote in the 1970s. Uh, and the memoir was called Awakenings. Now, Sacks describes himself as strongly atheistic by disposition. He's an atheist and a brilliant mind at that. And yet he writes these words in his memoir upon which this film was based. He says this, We pretend modern medicine is a rational science. All facts, no nonsense. But all of us entertain the idea of another sort of medicine, of a wholly different kind, something deeper, older, extraordinary, almost sacred. For all of us have a basic intuitive feeling that once we were whole and well, at ease, at peace, at home in the world, and that we lost this primal, happy, innocent state and fell into our present sickness and suffering. We had something of infinite beauty and preciousness and we lost it. We spend our lives searching for what we have lost and one day perhaps we will suddenly find it. I think that's an extraordinary quote coming from an atheist. 
And it's not far off a perfect description of Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humankind. We had this deep-to-deep connection, infinite beauty and preciousness, and we lost it. We walked away thinking, I don't need that. And we spend our lives searching for other things to fill the gap, and nothing adequately works. And if I decide, you know, maybe I just, maybe it's all found in God after all. I want to come to him through Jesus Christ. Because John 2 verse 1, this is a third day story. Jesus is alive. He's present with us right now through his Holy Spirit. He comes and makes my spirit alive. The core of who I am gets infused with resurrection power. I get born again. I get new life. A few verses that speak of this, though there are many others. 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed every day. Romans 8, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit is your life because of righteousness. New life, right in the core of who we are, spirit to spirit, deep to deep. And so in John 4, a couple of chapters later, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and says, hey, the day's about to come through me where people can worship in spirit and truth. Part of what he means is this, the day's about to come through him where people are going to worship not through external religious behaviors, but any time, any place, because the spirit is going to make our spirit alive. I can connect to God anywhere, any place like lovers. That's the intimacy that is available with God. That is why this sign comes first. Because it speaks of the intimacy that is available with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. And this doesn't just reveal that Jesus is the bridegroom. It also reveals what the bridegroom is going to do for us. I want to suggest three things from this first sign in John's Gospel. Firstly, the bridegroom is going to cleanse us. He's going to clothe us in white. It is not a coincidence that Jesus says in verse 6, let's use those jars for ceremonial washing. These would have been enormous jars, held 20 to 30 gallons. And the Jews would have used them to wash themselves externally before going into the temple. It wouldn't have literally cleansed them, but it was like a metaphor, a picture of what needed to happen for them to approach God. And part of Jesus' reason for using these is like, we don't need these anymore. A new kind of cleansing is going to come. You're going to approach God because of what the Spirit's going to do in the core of who we are. One of the books I read over Christmas was Dirty Glory by Pete Gregg. Uh, Pete's a great friend of us at Christ Church. Actually, he spoke here back in December, head of 24-7 prayer, amongst other things. And I, I love this. I found it very moving in places. It uh, reduced me to tears on a number of occasions. So that's not saying much because I cried everything, but very, very moving. And Perhaps one of the most moving stories for me was when he described just a really broken town in Mexico. Think bullets through windows, think bodies in streets, think sex industry rampant, incredible levels of poverty and destitution. And he describes the story of a young lady who gives up the comfort of the West to move there to bring something of the hope and light and life of Jesus. And she ends up meeting a woman who has lived there for as long as anybody can remember. She's trapped in the sex industry. She has been repeatedly abused by men who have used her body as a commodity for their own pleasure. She has no wealth. She has no future. She has no hope. But then she meets Jesus. It just changes everything. Here I go again. And the most moving part of the story is when this woman who's been trapped in the sex industry, she gets married in dazzling white. And her name gets changed to Liliana, which means purity. 
It's the most wonderful picture of the change that Jesus brings. You know, all the stuff in my history, I can never get rid of it. I can never change it. But the effects on my spirit, the guilt and the shame and the regret and the junk I carry around, Jesus can come in here and make me clean and make me new. You can get a fresh start tonight with Jesus. He cleanses. We don't need ceremonial jars anymore. You know, one reflection on, on bridal style, in as far as I'm aware, every single culture on earth, it's like on your wedding day, ladies, you are made to look at your most beautiful. It's like this is the peak. Well, over the last 15 years, I have had the privilege of seeing a sight that not everyone gets to see as often as I do. I've seen a number of dazzling brides dressed in white walking towards me on their wedding day. Uh, not because I have married a lot of women, I hasten to add. <laughs> That is not how we roll here at Christchurch, I just want to make clear. But I have officiated at a number of weddings. And it is always an incredibly moving moment when the bride enters and the eyes of everybody in the room are upon her. And if you're like me, you can't help yourself catching a glimpse of the groom, looking back at his bride and you're wondering, what does he think? And you think he's just utterly captivated by her. That is how Jesus sees us. Isn't that extraordinary? Jesus is the bridegroom. And he cleanses us in the deepest part of who we are. And he clothes us in white. We can know that intimacy and that cleansing when we worship a little later on. Second thing the bridegroom does for us is he invites us to a wedding feast. It's not insignificant that this first sign is Jesus turns water into wine. Uh, wine throughout the Bible is a very profound picture of joy and celebration and prosperity and freedom. And the fact that the best wine comes at the end of this story is also significant. You see, not only do I have this sense that I need cleansing deep in the core of who I am, I also look at the world in which we live. And I have this kind of, the New Testament describes it as a groaning, like things aren't right. But because Jesus is alive, one day he promises to come back and make everything right. The best wine's going to come again. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more weeping, no more pain. That is our great hope. But the amazing thing is this. Because of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 tells us this, that we can get a little foretaste of that day right now. Think of the day when there is nothing to worry about anymore. When death is done away with forever. There's nothing to be anxious about. We can taste that now when we worship because of the Holy Spirit. We can get lost in wonder, love and praise and think, oh, it's all okay because it's a third day story. He's on the throne. He's in control. He's alive and he cares about me right now. And through the Holy Spirit, I get a taste of the day when there is joy everlasting. You know, it is not insignificant. It's not just a coincidence that in Acts 2, the birth of the church, day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes and fills the disciples en masse for the first time. What is the critique from onlookers? Like, oh, they've had too much wine. Of course, that's not what's happened. But what are they seeing? Joy, celebration, freedom from inhibitions. Whatever you are going through right now, you can taste joy today because of the Holy Spirit a taste of when the best wine flows now interesting reflection what's one of the main reasons that in a city like London millions of people are not in church today it's not their hungover by the way it's not a wine illustration here's here's I think the reason is that over the last 100 years maybe more they have been sold a lie 
perhaps I'm ashamed to say for which the church is primarily responsible. That is this, if you want to be a Christian, it's just a real grind. It ain't fun. It's full of rules and regulations. You want a relationship with God? Here's all the stuff you have to do. Jesus will be like, you don't know the half of it. Like, I'm inviting you to a party. New wine's going to flow. Joy everlasting. Like, you know all those old fables? Think Lord of the Rings, stories of hills running with wine. Jesus is like, something better is coming. That's why this sign comes first. Party time, guys. The bridegroom is inviting us to the feast of all feasts, and we can get a taste of that day right now. Jesus is the bridegroom. He cleanses us and clothes us in white. He invites us to a party. And then thirdly, the bridegroom gives us free gifts. Just like this couple got the tastiest, headiest wine through no effort of their own. So as we connect with God in worship through the Holy Spirit, we get free gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some of them are coming up on the screen behind me. Long list of them. And these are given for two primary purposes. Two primary purposes. Firstly, that we might further deepen this deep-to-deep, spirit-to-spirit connection with God. Outwardly, I get man flu and I'm wasting away. But inwardly, that connection can go deeper. Or secondly, it's to help others into this deep-to-deep connection with God. That's the primary purpose of these gifts. Let me just take a couple as an example. Let me take the most curious one of all, the gift of tongues. We don't talk about tongues much. What on earth is this gift about? Let me try and articulate it this way. If you've ever been in love, you will know that sometimes you want to express this love to the other person that you are in love with. I'm not sure why I keep on saying love. I apologise. That's a bit weird. You want to say things like, oh, you look really beautiful today. I love what you've done with your hair. I love that outfit on you. But if you've ever been in love, you'll know that sometimes words fall short. Sometimes you want to get the other person and just go, that's not how I kiss, by the way. I want to make very clear. Just a metaphor for the talk. Well, the gift of tongues is a little bit like that. Now, keep your mind in a pure place at this point in the talk, okay? If I am expressing praise to God, how can I ever do that in in human words? Like the creator of the universe who flung galaxies into space and sent his one and only son to die for me. I mean, how do you put that into words? It's like standing in front of Mount Everest and saying, whoa, it's big. It's It's like a gross understatement. And so the Bible says one of the curious gifts he gives is this gift of a language that we've never learned. And if you have the gift of tongues, it's like when you're expressing tongues, if you want the actual verse, it's 1 Corinthians 14, 14. It says when you're speaking in tongues, your mind is unfruitful. You haven't got a scooby-doo what you are saying, but your spirit is alive. You're connecting with God in a deeper way. Hey, you can ask for that gift this evening if you'd like. There are other gifts that are given to deepen this relation. The gift of prophecy, the spiritual language, but hearing God's whispers and nudges for today. He cares about the moments in our life where it seems like the wine's run out and we need some more. But then these gifts are also given that we might help others into this deep-to-deep connection. One of the books I read in preparing for this talk was a collection of essays from leaders and theologians from around the world. It's called Worship in the Spirit, the Spirit in Worship. One of the stories that caught my attention was of a guy who'd kind of done a pilgrimage to different parts of the world, places where it seems like God had broken in and by his Holy Spirit done amazing things. Just think powerful encounters in worship, extraordinary miracles, like people flying in from all over the world to see what's going on. And he went back five, ten years later to say, you know, was it just all hype or was there lasting change? 
And he said this, he said, without exception, every single one of these places, it was like it all turned outward. It all turned missional. It's like people have been like, I can't keep this to myself. I've got to let others know. Jesus is alive. We can know God in this intimate way. Now we need some of these gifts, don't you think? Now we're all called to do evangelism, to share our faith. To say, yeah, Jesus is amazing. But to some people, God gives a gift, just this particular knack to help many people into faith with him. We need that gift in this church. Gift of prophecy, hearing God's voice with new sharpness. Gifts of healing and miracles. Wouldn't it be amazing if this service grew because people thought you get healed here? Wouldn't that be amazing? You can ask for these gifts tonight if you want. And some of you, you know you've got them, but you want more. You can ask for them for greater measure and greater sharpness. Jesus is the bridegroom. He cleanses us, the deepest part of who we are, clothes us in white, invites us to a party, joy, feasting, celebration, a taste of what's to come, and free gifts. And therefore, here is the $64 billion question. If you listen to this and think, that sounds pretty good, how do I get it? How do I get this intimacy with God and everything that comes with the bridegroom? Two things. And the Bible deliberately makes this simple. The first thing we have to do is this. We've got to admit that we have no more wine and we need some more. Again and again, the invitation in the Bible is to the thirsty. Isaiah 55, John 7, coming up on the screen. If you want more of God, you've just got to ask. It really is that easy. I was trying to think of an illustration, kind of put flesh on the bones, and I remembered, rather curiously, the first ever argument that I had with my now wife, Joy. Probably it came to mind because a wedding was involved. It's about 13, 14 years ago. We'd been dating a few months, and Joy got invited to a wedding, and she was allowed to bring a plus one. So she said to me, she said, Andy, do you want to be my plus one at the wedding? And I said, well, do you mind if I come? And she said, no, 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 I don't mind. And so I asked a couple of questions, and it turned out I didn't know anybody else at this wedding. And uh, it was on a Saturday, and I really like football. Football's on a Saturday. And I was like, well, if you don't mind if I don't come, I'll leave it. Thank you very much. Well, well, (laughs) all right, all right. It may have taken me 14 years, but have a bit of grace, okay, yeah. Well, after after declining this invitation, I uh, noticed that Joy was a bit frostier than she had been a few moments earlier. I was like, is is everything okay? And she's like, yes, yes, I'm fine, thank you, I'm fine. Well, at that point, I knew. I knew something wasn't right. And eventually, she cracked, and she said, I don't know why you don't want to come to the wedding. And I said, but you said you didn't mind. And she said, but I don't think it's very nice that you don't want to come to the wedding. But you said you didn't mind. And so this escalated. And I want to make clear, 14 years later, I won the argument. I, 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 don't groan. I made it clear, ladies. uh, I made it clear that don't say I don't mind when quite clearly you really do mind, okay? That's a lesson for all of us. But had I had the maturity and social intelligence to think about it for a moment, I would have realized this. Joy did not want me to come to the wedding. Joy wanted me to want to come to the wedding. You're nodding. I've got it right. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, it's a bit different. She doesn't want me to come to the wedding if I'm like, oh, I'd much rather be at the football. I don't know anyone here. This is rubbish. She doesn't want that Andy at the wedding. She wants me to be like, well, I like football, but you're better. I'd rather be with you. Oh, that's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah. She wants me to be like, it doesn't matter if I don't know anyone at the wedding. I'm with you. That's the main thing. Oh, yeah, I I see it now. Yeah. 
Worship kind of works the same way. God doesn't want us to do a whole load of religious behaviors, like go through the motions to connect with him. He's looking for thirst. Have I really got, have I really got thirst? Do I really want more of him? You know, one of the little kind of applications that's been thrown out a few times through this series, I want to qualify. The application is, wouldn't it be great if we were all here on time on a Sunday, ready to worship God at six o'clock? Well, I want to qualify that by saying this. On one level, you know, we really, and God really, does not care what time you get to church. Really doesn't. You know, sometimes for me, I'm a dad of three little kids. Sometimes just getting to church and having not killed anyone, that is successful Christianity for me sometimes, okay? It's not the time. God's not there with a the tick list. Oh, you know, 5.57, great, you know. We don't care. We don't want people here. Like, like, like if you're here at 5.55, like, hey, Andy, hey, Joel, hey, Dee, I'm here early. Happy now? We don't want that person here at 5.55, okay? Don't come. But what does it say about our corporate thirst for God if we just kind of swagger in whenever we feel like it? Jesus isn't looking for punctuality. He's looking for thirst. Do I have that? And by the way, by the way, just to be clear, thirst is not just an emotion. It is also a decision. That deep to deep Psalm, Psalm 42, it starts off with David praying, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Sometimes I'm just like, I've got to have more of you, God. But in the very same Psalm, same Psalm, verse 7, I think it is, David says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. You know, sometimes with church, I'm just not feeling it. I get to church and I'm just like, oh, Christians, oh. I've heard that anecdote before. Oh, not another day's drought talk. Goodness me. Like, we've all been there. I need to, hey, what's going on? You need him. Without him, you're nothing. Like, you're going to try and do this life in your own strength? Put your hope in God. If you're in church right now and you're just not feeling it, you can lead yourself to a place of thirst in the next five minutes. Thirst is not just an emotion. It is a decision. Do I really, do I really like preach to myself, say, I need him more than anything? How do I get more of God? He's just looking for thirst. But there's one more thing I think we can do if we want the most intimate relationship with God. And it would be remiss of me not to mention this. And it's verse five. Do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. If we want more of the Holy Spirit, I think holiness matters. And I want to bring a little bit of clarification here because why am I talking about holiness doing things if Jesus has already cleansed us well this is an illustration I've used before but I found it really helpful when I first heard it and so no apologies for repetition it's kind of a wedding illustration so it kind of fits nicely uh, 11 years ago this year this happened next slide there we are on our wedding day 25th of August 2007 I've not aged a bit I think you'd all agree <laughs> on that day there was a legal change in my status in this country I was a bachelor now I am married. What happens if the following week I am grumpy or smelly or rude to Joy? Not so hard to undo. Bad luck. You put a ring on it, Joy. We are still married. Ha ha. But if I want the most intimate marriage possible, I am married. Now I need to live married. Devoted. Generous. Kind. I am married. Can't really change that. But I now need to live married. Holiness works the same way. When I come into Christ, God looks at me and says, legal declaration of my life. You are forgiven. You are holy. Me speaking to you right now, I am holy. What happens if I don't read the Bible or pray at all over this next week? Holy. What happens if I'm just really angry at the inner church and I punch Joel Wade in the face? 
holy. It's amazing grace. <laughs> don't, don't take that as an opportunity, by the way. By the way. But if I really want the most intimate possible relationship with God, while I am holy, I now need to live holy. Now I need to live holy. Put relationships right. Matthew 5. Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can get close to God? The one with clean hands and a pure heart. Hebrews 12. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And so in a couple of moments' time, we're just going to pray a simple prayer. My prayer ain't special. Do you thirst a deeper connection with God and all that comes with the bridegroom? just going to ask, Holy Spirit, fill us with your presence again. But maybe for some of you, he might whisper. Put that relationship right. Confess that habit. Sort out that issue at work. I wondered for some, particularly in this service, whether breaking through fear is an issue for you. And there's part of your life and fear is stopping you walk into what the Bible would call obedience. Maybe the Spirit's going to whisper to you about that and say it's time to get out your comfort zone and walk into more of what God has for you. Whatever he whispers, he loves you so much. He's not an evil taskmaster. He's our lover. Do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus is the bridegroom. There is genuine intimacy available with God. He cleanses us. You can get a fresh start right now, deep in the core of who you are. Guilt, shame, condemnation, gone. Joy, celebration, a taste of the feast that is to come. Free gifts given tonight. How do we get it? Ask, just ask. Looking for thirst. And then do whatever he tells you to do. Why don't we all stand? Maybe the band want to come up. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.